Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I are continuing our COVID-19 online learning experience for our students at Wisconsin Lutheran College. We're here today to do uh, Philosophy 202, which is uh, apologetics. We are in the realm of ontology here. And so just as a review, when you see the word ontology, think being. So the ontological argument, which I did a real short 10-minute one, uh, that uh, my students have already gone through. It's kind of a fun period for me because the ontological arguments seems kind of silly and people kind of get frustrated with it. And I, I don't want to, I don't like spending too much time on it because it's, it, it's not really that practically useful when it comes to, to apologetics. But underneath that umbrella of ontology, I put, along with other people, put the problem of evil. And the reason for that is simply because the problem of evil is often uh, set up this way. How could there be an all-loving, all-powerful God and also be a world of evil? And so when we look at that, we think there's maybe three options. I'm going to offer a fourth one later on, but let's just talk about the first three. Either God is not all-powerful. So there's evil in the world. Sometimes he stops it. Sometimes he can't, and sometimes he can't. So sometimes the devil wins. Sometimes God wins. Good luck with that. The second object, the second option it's is kind of like Star Wars. That one. Yeah. Sometimes the Jedi triumph. Sometimes a yeah. Darth Vader. Um, <clears throat> the second option I think is actually worse. God is not all loving. So God just doesn't care. So sometimes crap happens and sometimes good thing happens again. Hey, good luck. And then the third option is that there just isn't a God. So sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes good things happen. And how can we even decide what is good and what is bad? Good luck, right? So this would be uh, historically uh, what an atheist would like to point out and say, <clears throat> it's just... Just one thing after another. It's just kind of a, a tough life out there. Um, and you just got to kind of deal with it, I guess. It's a hard knock life. It's just, uh, just the way it is. It's a hard knock life. Because you uh, cannot, uh, they will say, you cannot uh, uh, reconcile an all-powerful God with an all-loving God. Because if he was all-powerful and all-loving, <clears throat> then... Wouldn't if he had stopped evil, or would there be no evil that is created? That kind of thing. So, wait, I'm gonna. You've talked about this before, so I won't be uh, giving you something you don't know. But you might be. Um, when someone says, "Well, who didn't God create evil?" and you would rightfully say, "Well, that's a kind of a category mistake, right?" So, evil's not something that's created. Maybe you want to play with that a little bit. Sure, I think a lot of things that we think of post-fall existing in the world, evil is not a created thing. Evil is the corruption of good, right? And Augustine talks about this. Um, so evil is not a new thing being created. It's a created thing being abused, if that makes sense. The same as when we think of original sin, our fall into sin. It's not like there's been original sin now inserted into us, a new thing. Original sin is a lack of original righteousness, so even that is not a created thing. It's simply a lack of that thing. So um, this is not like a new thing injected. Um, this is people abusing uh, good things for purposes for which they were not created. So 
uh, I, I, the, it's kind of a dead end when somebody says, well, why did God create evil? Well, he didn't create it. And uh, there's a category mistake to think of evil as something that is created, right? Now, one object, one thing that maybe a Christian might point out is the fact that we can identify something as evil presupposes an objective standard of good and therefore an objective standard of evil. And so then you're in the moral argument where you say, okay, let's just, okay, there is good and evil. If you say that there is good and evil, then you're saying that there is an objective standard and therefore you may not like that the answer to why there is evil, but obviously there is. So once you're even talking about a good and evil, you're talking about stuff that's outside, that something's outside just this physical world, that a uh, naturalistic, a metaphysical naturalism, which we defined as there is just the natural world. There is no soul, there is no God, there are no angels, there's no spirits, there's no spiritual realm. Once you start talking about good and evil, those are metaphysical terms in a certain sense. They are something that uh, is beyond just the, the physical. And so you can't just say, well, there's evil, therefore there's no God. That, that's, that, that I think is a dead end. Um, <clears throat> here's another thing that, to think about is just the, f- the fact that you disapprove of a thing does not negate the thing being. So again, ontology being. So smart atheists are not going to fall into this trap, but often you'll hear, I could never believe in a God that would allow whatever. I can never believe in a God that would send somebody to hell. I can't believe in a God that would call for the annihilation of the Canaanites in the Old Testament. I could never believe in a God just fill in the blank there. But just because you disapprove with something doesn't mean that it does not exist. So I may say, I can never believe in a world that where there would be cancer. And so if I get cancer, I'm not going to go to the hospital because I know it doesn't exist because I don't believe in it. Well, just because you don't believe something exists doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Just because you believe that it shouldn't be that way doesn't mean that it is not that way. Just because you can't stomach or contemplate this doesn't mean that the whole thing's negated. And so, you know, kind of a silly way is I don't want pizza to make me fat doesn't mean that pizza doesn't make me fat, right? Um, just because I, I disapprove with how God handles the world does not disprove his being, his existence. So that's uh, something that can be pointed out rightfully. Like I said, a, a well-thought atheist is not going to fall into that trap, but uh, some people sometimes do. Here's maybe another thing to think about is that a loving God could or would create his creatures with free will. So the analogy goes like this. So, uh, and this is from John Montgomery, and I'll, I'll, I'll butcher this a little bit, but I think we'll get the same point across, is that let's say there is a, a, a mother and a father, and uh, they have a baby, and right away the father um, is in uh, a bad situation. He gets beaten to death. Oh, man. I mean, just a terrible That's situation. Terrible. And, this, and this woman is left with this child. I'm glad, I'm glad this is just a story and not like a real-life thing. And uh, she's a widow, um, and she now puts all of her attention onto her, her son. It's a son. And <clears throat> she is not going to let her son out into that big, bad world that had taken her husband from her. And so out of love, 
she does not send her kid to school. She doesn't even let allow her kid to go outside. She doesn't want him to even fall on the sidewalk and skin his knee, let alone go out and play with those mean boys that are going to pick on him or get in a fight with him. Uh, she's learned her lesson about this world. And so she shields everything about the world from her son. He can't listen to the radio. He can't go on the internet. He can't watch television. She shelters him. And she does this his entire life, keeps him in the attic, only shows him her loving face. So years go by, decades go by, and uh, finally the widow dies of natural causes. She had lived a good life. Um, her hair at pride grade? Yeah, well, yeah, she's 85. She dies. And her son at this point is actually a pretty old guy. He's, uh, he's 60 years old, right? But he's never been outside, right? And so one of the neighbors is like, oh, I haven't, I haven't seen Ethel very, very much, you know? And so they call for a well check and the cops come over and they go into the house and sure enough, they find Ethel in her, her rocking chair and she has passed away peacefully, but still tragic, of course. And they hear something up in the attic. And so they go up into the attic and lo and behold, there is, um, there's Bobby, uh, 60 years old and he doesn't know what to do. Right. And his hair is probably great also. And. He's cuckoo, crazy, Yeah. right? I mean, he's only seen one person, his mother. Uh, he, he has never seen the outside world. And <clears throat> at first glance, we may think that, oh, this woman was trying to protect her son, never gave her, him the opportunity to get into trouble or to get into danger. But she really wasn't loving, right? She was probably just loving herself. She did not, in effect, give her child choices. And in a way, this is an analogy for she did not give him a certain amount of free will. And so to take that to God is to say that wouldn't be very loving for God to not let us go out into this big, bad world, right? But to make all the decisions for us, in effect, taking at least some, if not all of our free will. So then we carry that analogy a little bit further. And we say, if God is going to truly be a loving God to his creatures, they would be given free will. Right. And that that, yeah, means that there are decisions that are going to be made that are going to have ramifications in this sinful world. And so if we're going to talk about love, we are going to talk about freedom. And this it's a silly example, but it actually is quite profound when we think about how to govern people. Right. That uh, we want to take every maybe a government wants to take everything that they see as bad out of the world. But with that, you take often will take away free choice, right? So we, we b try to balance this out. Should we allow sugary soda, right? You know, and so there's arguments for, well, this is bad for people, so we're going to take it away. But then you take away their free choice. Um, <clears throat> even if those are the ramifications for that free choice, we try to balance this all, all the time when it comes to narcotics, when it comes to sugar, when it comes to uh, a lot of things. And the, the pit, the, the, what's pit against each other uh, is a free will and, and uh, the free exercise of our, our choices versus what is good and what is bad for us. So it, it's doesn't, not a home run. It doesn't answer all the questions, but we can understand that, f that love is connected to a certain amount of free will. Now, when we talk about free will as, as specifically Lutherans, but as Christians as a whole, we understand that when God gives us free will in things below, right? So I have the free choice to make a, a ham sandwich or a turkey sandwich for lunch. But when it comes to things above spiritual, I have 
I have a bound will, a bound that is, I don't have free choice when it comes to sin. Like, I can't stop sinning. And if I could, I would have already done that. And I don't choose God. He chooses me in order for it to be grace. And so it gets kind of complicated there. But I think we can understand that love and free will go hand in hand. Um, Another thing to think about is that love will include justice. So when we think about God, we think about him as merciful and just. And we can't have one without the other. Or let's say God cannot be what he declares himself to be uh, without being both just and merciful. So this gets played out when it, when it comes to the cross. How can God be just and merciful? Well, he's going to be just. There is going to be a stroke of justice. Uh, there must be blood, right? And freedom isn't free. Freedom, the going price for freedom is, is usually blood. But it's not going to be your blood or my blood. It is going to be his own blood. It's going to be Christ's blood. And so mercy and justice come and are kiss at the cross, we might say. Uh, it, it, they, they're reconciled on, in a certain sense. So <clears throat> justice also has to do with love. So if somebody harms somebody else, we want justice for that person. We want uh, maybe there is going to be um, reparations for somebody uh, who, who got something stolen from them. Um, there, there may be, we think about justice for somebody who has been murdered, that kind of thing. So when we think about God, we need to understand that there is going to be negative things in a sinful world because he is a just God. Now, this becomes, I think, a little bit complicated in our, if you live in a first world country, this becomes a little hard for us to to grasp. And we often look at the world and we look at God and we say, geez, what God, why is he, what's the big deal, God? Why does he, there always seems to have to be this punishment or this uh, chastisement or whatever. But that's easy for me to say in a first world situation. Um, But when, if you're living in a third world country in a very unjust economic situation or living under an unjust government, your criticism of God is not that he is being uh, too mean and has too much justice, but that he's been too patient and too merciful with maybe the greedy West or a government that has been, uh, uh, that has unfairly treated its citizens. And you start to realize God can never win with us, right? That there's always a complaint that we have, whether he's too merciful or he is too full of, of right, rightful justice and vengeance. Um, <clears throat> we may think about it this way as well. Like why, why is God so angry with the Canaanites? <clears throat> and, and I, I, I'll use this example. So, uh, you know, and this is, this is an example I can't use for many more years um, because it's, being, it's, it's starting to get old. But if you remember those cheesy, like, 48-hour shows, like on Friday night at 9 p.m., they got, uh, it's a true crime story. It's an hour long. And the first half hour of the story is, it's usually a love triangle, right? And by this cheap television, you have been manipulated to think uh, so poorly about the suspect, right? So you're like, the boyfriend did it. Of course he did it. Uh, he's, he's guilty as sin. You even think to yourself, you know, I'm not much for the, the, 
the death penalty, but for this guy, you know, I want to send, you've been manipulated by cheesy television for 20 minutes to, to be full of righteous anger towards this injustice. And then you look at the clock and you're like, oh, it's 930 as you go to commercial break and you know exactly what's going to happen is that the, they're going to tell the other side of the story. And you get manipulated again by a cheap 20 minutes of television. You know, the, the, the voiceover guy is like talking, you know, very dramatically. And by the end of that second half of the show, you're like, everything's corrupt. The DA's corrupt. These cops are clown, uh, clowns. This guy's being railroaded. The whole system's, you know, on trial here, right? And you realize that you have in 20 minutes about people you've never met been, been manipulated to righteous indignation. Well, if you look at the ancient Near East, it was a pretty nasty place. And if you put yourself into that, that cheesy show and say, maybe it was my daughter that was murdered, or maybe it was my son that was being railroaded, how angry you would be. And to be, if you're honest with yourself, you would want justice and you would want it swift and you would want it merciless if you're honest with yourself. So if you look at the ancient Near East and you see the stuff that has been happening to God's creatures, to his human beings that he created, to his children, to the point of child sacrifice, right? And, and you look at this situation and, and, and then I'm not making an excuse for God. I'm not, I'm not saying, um, you know, I'm not trying to whitewash God or whatever, but I think you can come to the conclusion that maybe God was a little bit more patient than we give him credit for. And that if I was in that situation, I would just be as righteously indignant as he was maybe even more so. And so you have to allow God to have his righteous indignation. You have yours. What gives you the right to say that he can't have his? And what he has and what we don't have is a mechanism for forgiveness, that this mercy and justice can come together and kiss at the cross. And so you start to see God maybe in a new light here, um, that, uh, you know, maybe there is this thing called evil that needs to be punished. And, and, and that has ramifications. And how dare I, uh, without the perspective of God, in my little, just this little show has manipulated me to righteous indignation. How dare I then criticize the way God deals with sin and evil? <clears throat> so we do have to come to the conclusions that if there is a God, and we may say to an atheist, just hear me out for the sake of argument that there is a God that, I, that, I, that the Bible is claiming, and he has these certain attributes, you can at least understand the possibility of, of a conclusion that God is righteously in, indignant and he must have his, his so-called vengeance. Um, and we would want him to be that way, and we would be the same way as well. And so the big thing is God does provide an out. And what is also uh, important about this is that God does lament. God does allow lament. And we see this in the Psalms all the time. And in our American context, we don't, we don't like those Psalms of lament. We want everything to be happy, clappy. Uh, but God is appreciative of those people who have suffered. And he listens to their lament. And those cries do not go unheard. And if you have a worldview, for lack of a better term, where there is no God, that is both just and merciful, that there is no God of love, you really don't have any out. You really don't have any mechanism for getting better. Um, it's just the way it is. Good luck out there. So if God, if we're allowed to have our anger, 
uh, then God is allowed to have his as well. Um, I don't think uh, uh, students on page two of this handout, I, I, don't, I don't know that we want to go through all the different options too in depth, but I'll just mention some of them. Um, God is, there's, there's a couple options on how you deal with this. One is open theism. God is just not omnipotent, so he's not all-powerful. Or God is not involved in the world. Think of a deist. So God is not loving enough to stop evil. Um, we can't call God good or evil, for that matter, because this is a human concept, but that doesn't seem to be to be right because, um, you know, God, that doesn't mean that God is not good. He does call himself good. We can attempt, and this is theodicy, to vindicate God, to make excuses for God. You have to let him have his right. You have to let God be God. We can also attempt to make a moral justification for evil, and I don't think we should do that. Um, evil is evil, right? The, the ends don't justify the mean. The means. Uh, in, the, in that uh, handout, I also talked about kind of a free will defense. Um, soft determinism would mean man is free, but every event has a cause. The problem with that is that you eliminate human responsibility, that there, how could you punish somebody if it's already determined? You have freedom without consequences. Evil acts don't really produce bad things, and therefore there's no real consequence for sin. That doesn't seem to be a, a good solution as well. Um, and so it, it becomes a little bit a little bit kind of kind of tricky there. Uh, we don't want to fall into what's called consequentialism either. I'm skipping ahead here. Evil for a greater good, or, or we think of God as an economist, right? Uh, here's a little bit of evil, here's a little bit of good, and he's kind of keeping track of, of all of that. So this can be a very difficult uh, uh, thing to, to, to maneuver through. I'm going to give you one more option, and that would be a fourth option, and that will lead us into our next and final session, which will be the theology of the cross. So I'm going to leave some of that uh, for, for the next period. Um, so option number one, God is not powerful enough to stop evil. Option number two, God is not loving enough, and so he doesn't care to stop evil in certain circumstances or maybe all circumstances. Option number three, that there's just, there is no God. All of those are unsatisfactory. Certainly, as we look through the world, we just kind of have to give up. I think the fourth option, and this sounds strange, but I think it's very comforting, is that God is in charge of evil. He's not the source of evil, but he is in charge of evil. So we may think about it this way. And again, this gets into the theology of the cross a little bit. When we talk about God hiding in masks, he hides behind the mask of nature. We can see something about God through natural law, but we don't see grace. It doesn't get us to Jesus Christ. It does not get us to Yahweh, the God of free, free and loving grace. Um, <clears throat> he wears the mask of uh, the flesh. He becomes man. He wears the, the mask of vocation. He serves the world through, through uh, people that he calls. He puts on the mask even of scripture in a certain sense, that he is revealed to us. And all of this is paradoxical, that he hides to be revealed. He hides to be intimate and close with us. We also go so far as to say that he hides behind suffering. And this is where I think there's a connection with the problem of evil. That I may look at something as good, but actually it may be evil and vice versa. Something that is evil may be something that actually God is 
using is good. Now I'm going to explain that more in the next uh, session when we get into the theology of the cross, but just to, just to put it together right now, my good deeds that I think are great and good, and they may be good, and I polish them like trophies and put them on my mantle, if they work against faith, that is, I start trusting in myself, I, I think I should be judged by law, righteousness by law, then <clears throat> um, that if it works against faith, then they're actually evil. So what looks good is actually evil. If the goal is faith in Christ and the opposite of faith is faith in anything else, usually ourselves, then those good things, if they're turned into idols, if they're turned into my avenue for righteousness, they're actually bad, even though on the surface they look good. Seems to me also the opposite would be true, that if, if something bad happens to me and I stop trusting in myself. I, I can't look to the, to the government or to the doctors anymore, to my friends. I can't look in myself and I'm desperate and, I, and I'm forced to trust in God. That thing that was outwardly evil, maybe it was cancer, maybe it was a death in the family or whatever, God used for good. So it looks bad, but it is actually good. And so we may go so far as to say that God puts on the mask of the devil that he hides behind the devil, that he uses the devil for our eternal good. So let me bring up the, the story of Job just really quickly. So Job, um, rich man, got everything going for him. And uh, the devil is going back and forth on the earth. And it's almost like in Job chapter one, God kind of, you know, he senses that the devil's sort, sort of uh, playing with him. Like, hey, no, ain't nobody like you around here. Look at this awful world. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? He is righteous, righteous by faith. He, he's a righteous man. And the devil says, well, of course he is. Look at all the cattle he's got. Look at his family. Look at his standing in society. Of course he loves you. He's got everything good. You let me at him. And you'll see Job will curse you and die. And probably one of the most interesting passages in the Bible is where God says, okay, go ahead. But you can't take his life. And then we have the story of Job, where he loses his health, he loses his wealth, he loses his family, uh, his friends can't help, he is a very desperate man. And yet, out of that pressure, think of the pressure uh, underground on a piece of coal, over years comes a diamond, so we have this, under the pressure of Job comes this diamond that we still sing in the Easter season, I know that my Redeemer lives. And, and Job says, in my flesh, right, as his flesh is actually melting away through the skin disease, he's confidently says in my flesh I will stand upon the earth and I and I I will see I will see my redeemer. And so it backfires on the devil. All of the devil's ability to take away these things actually makes Job's faith stronger. And in the end Job does not curse God and die. Um but um he he trusts God and everything is being is brought back to him. So I, I'm not saying that the devil and God have a monthly staff meeting, but let's say they do. And uh, the devil says, ain't nobody like you around here. And God says, well, what about my people in the church? Uh, literally St. whatever in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, he says, uh, 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 they love me. They are righteous. And Job says, well, look how well they have it, right? They got, they got the best economy in the world. They all got two cars in their garage. They got, you know, a cabin up north. Of course they like you. If you let me at them, they will curse you and die. 
And God goes through the list and says, okay, for this person, everything but financial ruin. This person, you can't touch their health. This person, you can't touch their life. And, and, and the devil takes those marching orders as they were, or those permissions from God, and attacks us. And I think the devil knows full well that this is going to backfire. He's smart enough to know that it's going to. But I always thought the devil as the perpetual buyer of lottery tickets. Like, he can't help himself. He thinks he's going to win this time. And through it all, our faith is strengthened, even if it doesn't seem as, as strong uh, in certain circumstances as it, as it once did. And God is beating the false piety and false faith out of us, so we have to trust him. And so what seems like is bad is actually good. And God puts on the mask of the devil. And in that way, God is in charge of evil. And I think that gives us a fourth option in the problem of evil. And even though we can't quite explain it, quite put our finger on it, that seems to, well, it certainly seems to be a better outcome for us than the other three options, that there is no God, tough luck. God's not loving enough to do anything, tough luck. God's not powerful enough to change it, so tough luck. This seems to be a much better option, and certainly the option that the Bible as a whole puts forward, um, that God is going to use uh, even bad things for us. So this is not like a satisfactory answer necessarily of the problem of evil, but what it does is it provides again, for lack of a better word, a worldview that does explain what the Bible says and my existence. And, and all other options seem to be a little bit, they seem to trip up. They don't, they don't seem to fully explain it. And it's certainly those options don't end with any kind of hope, right? So this is one way you can talk to your, you know, your skeptical friend and say, Hey, this is not, this is suffering. This is not where there's going to be this, this easy answer. Um, but if we start thinking it in terms of sin and grace and start thinking it in terms of free will and love and start thinking of terms of the power of God and the theology of the cross, which we'll get to, seems to be maybe a better uh, way of looking at the world. So, Wade, you've been quiet here. Um, maybe you want to wanna say, uh, po- poke some holes in my argument here or say, what do you think? No, I, I think it's all helpful, and I think, as you said at the end, these are good arguments to understand and to be able to to use to kind of knock down obstacles to being able to talk about the faith. But as you, you've mentioned as well, uh, at the end of the day, we we find God where he's promised to be for our own good and the means of grace with his grace and mercy. Uh, and we rejoice that even through sufferings, uh, like a man riding a lame horse yet to, arriving at his destination even though it pulls to one side or the like the grocery shopper with that cart with the wobbly wheel that that makes it uh you know kind of run askew who nonetheless ends up at the self-checkout counter with all of her or his uh, hand sanitizer and flour and toilet paper um god can work even through suffering uh in a world like this, and the, the cross is the ultimate sign of that, and we, or I at least, certainly give thanks for that, even while uh, a kick and scream and suffering, because it isn't supposed to be this way. And so we're going to get a little bit more pastoral in uh, the next session, will be the theology of the cross. Um, we've already talked about, is God a moral mon- monster at a previous one, although it's we're out of order recording recording here, Wade. I'm going to put the, is God a moral monster question with uh, the new atheists, which... Just we'll make com- sure I number it right. So. Yeah, which will, which will in, 
our students will get that one before before that. That's okay. Uh, we're going to put that with the new the atheist, which we're going to record tomorrow. Um, so there's some other questions there, and one of the big questions is how do you deal with morality, right? Um, uh, what are the attempts of the uh, of atheists to to put together a worldview where there is morality that becomes very tricky for them. And, and so we've already played with that just a little bit, but we're going to be much more pastoral when we talk about the theology of the cross as it relates to apologetics. So Wade, thanks for listening and students. Thanks for listening. We're getting to the end of our semester here. Hopefully you're not uh, going stir crazy here and uh, um, we'll see you soon enough face to face. I hope. And uh, until then let the bird fly. <laughs>